When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. I read the paper sometime in 2016, and my immediate reaction wasn't, wow, Bitcoin is amazing. My immediate reaction was, holy shit, this technology can put ETFs out of business. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Michael Venuto, co-founder and CIO of Toroso Investments. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Michael. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Hi, Maggie. Happy to be here. (laughs) Well, happy to have you. So before we jump into your trades, we always like to just find out a little bit about you, your background, where'd you grow up, and what were the early years like? Sure. So um, I actually was born in New York, uh, but grew up in North Carolina. It was a very different world than New York. So uh, I guess we moved there when I was about 10. I was very lucky to use all the things of the education system down there. It was a little bit different. Up here in New York, I went to like Catholic school and uh, very strict (laughs) education. Down there, I participated in, you know, chess and and uh, odyssey of the mind debate all these things that really uh helped me have a real career and um i really believe strongly in the extracurricular uh yesterday on one of our spaces we actually had gary kasparov the uh, famous chess player and now you know um i guess politician to some degree right he's yeah he's one of the few vocal voices that was challenging putin ahead of time and uh we talked a lot about his book but I had mentioned on the spaces that I'm more likely to hire somebody with a chess rating than a, a Wharton degree when I get a resume. So I, I strongly believe in that. Why is that? I just think that um, the ability to think differently than what you're programmed is what makes a good investor. I remember like AP English, the uh, Mrs. Fishman, that was my AP English teacher. I don't think I've said that in 30 years, but I guess it would be 20. I'm not that old. Um, I remember her saying this this quote that I loved, which was, in order to break the rules, you have to know them all. So, I, I mean, there's value in that Wharton degree, right? But, you know, how many kids thought they could write like James Joyce or Toni Morrison? They can't because they don't know the rules in order to break them. And I think that the combination of critical thinking and extracurricular thought and teachings combined with that traditional is what makes the ability to make great investors. Yeah. What about the experience of failure in that? You know, I often <laughs> think about like, you, 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 there is knowing the rules, but then having the, being willing to break them or knowing when to break them or being willing to take a chance. That's, that's, that's part of it too, isn't it? Yeah, I, I like uh, Simon Sinek's concept of the infinite game. Yes. Right? So the idea that you're not just playing one hand. You know, chess was also a good parlay into poker. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I consider myself a pretty decent <laughs> poker player. But like 
poker players think of things in infinite game. It's not about winning this one trade. It's about winning the overall concept. You know, what are you trying to achieve working from the objective backwards as opposed to just stringing together wins and losses? Yeah, that's it. it, it it's hard, I think, when you're young to see it that way. Or maybe <laughs> it's not. Hard when you're young. Yeah, or or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe we start out seeing it that way, and then we're kind of programmed to move away from that that line of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's too easy when you're young not to be uh, critical of your own thought because you just think that you're immortal. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. So you you liked chess. You like these sort of you know using your your mind like that. Did you have an interest in finance or know what? the market was or trading? I mean, is that part of your family life that, you know, what no. was your awareness now? Not at all. Everybody in my family is an elevator mechanic. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, my father, my brother, my cousins, my uncle, I guess the, the women or my mom's a, a CPA and a corporate controller. So she's a little more in my world, but, uh, I had no concept of finance. So let's talk about your first trade. Your first trade was trading academia for a life in finance. Yeah. Set the scene for us. Um, so, you know, what, what's happening in your life? What kind of academia were you doing? Walk us through that. Yeah. So we're kind of hinting at it, but I've never taken a finance course in my life. I think I took a statistics course, but I was at North Carolina State doing a debate scholarship. Uh, I was very good at debate. It was kind of a parlay from chess. It was just moving from pieces to words. I love the concepts of arguments and I fell in love with the concept of postmodern philosophy. And so I studied philosophy and religion at North Carolina State. Okay, wait, wait. This is this is wild. Not only did you not take a finance course, but you were like the end of the the crazy end of liberal arts. So I'm a liberal arts major as well. So I yep. feel you. But this is like philosophy is kind of what people put up as the poster child of what not to do if you want to make an income or have a life. Correct. I was always really good at at like winning things, but I had no desire to like work in corporate life. I really thought I was going to stay in academia my entire life and and you know become a professor and write books and postmodern literature and write biopics on things in society that I saw and I was very into learning the writing I cared very little about the economic benefit of any of it and uh let's see my favorite joke is how do you make god laugh and it's try to make a plan for your life um yeah. So my plan was, you know, stay out of the corporate worlds, uh, you know, just kind of um, grow my hair out, which now I don't have any, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and right, God did not agree. He, he uh, gave me a situation where I had some, you know, challenges down there in North Carolina where I just, you know, didn't know how to make it to the next level. And then my grandmother passed away, and I was always very close with my grandparents. Our summer camp was visiting New York and staying at Grandma and Grandpa's house to go fishing all summer. Uh, so I decided to, you know, I was down, I had maybe 12 credits left, and I said, I'm going to go to New York for the summer. And I was 21 years old, and spend the summer with my grandfather and help him get everything back together, right? He was mm -hmm. kind of a patriarch of the family, but there was nobody left in New York except him at that point probably the best summer of my life, you know, went to dinner 
three nights a week with him and learned so many things from him. That's amazing. And went fishing a lot. Took a job as a waiter or whatever just to stay afloat. All the while thinking I'm going back to North Carolina at the end of the summer and pursuing this uh, education career or academia career. Sometime during that summer, I started to hang out with some friends of mine from when I was young, like, you know, that I went to Catholic school with or whatever. And one of them, I, I don't ever tell his last name when I tell this story, but his name was Steve. Steve would be, I can only describe him as like the Joey Tribbiani character from Friends. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm viewing this all in my head like a movie because this is, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> leaves North Carolina, goes back home to the city, meets up with old friends. So he's Joey. Yeah, he's Joey. Like, not at all smart. The accent and everything. Yeah, yeah, accent and everything. His <laughs> last name is Italian. Um, you know, so we we would hang out, and uh, he drove a Lexus. He was my age, not smart, but he drove a Lexus. And and I said, I said, Steve, you know, one day I was just finally like, well, what do you do? And he goes, I work at the New York Stock Exchange. I was like, okay, but what do you do there? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, this is it. Here's here's my first book. Right? This is gonna be my first book. I'm going to show the absurdity. And this is nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand. Ever it was two thousand. And it's worth pointing out. So this is at a time when the stock exchange was really probably at its peak. We would now look yeah. back and say that that was the peak and the people would start leaving. It would get automated. They would move to decimalization. But that was back when you saw movies and the crazy and the paper and all that shouting and just tons of people on the floor. That's what it was like down there. Yes. Well, there was 10,000 people down there. Um, and I know this because once he told me that, I decided I'm going to infiltrate Wall Street, get an internship, and write a book about all of the absurdity of it all. It's interesting because you didn't – I'm thinking as, as you know, we're always anticipating what people are going to say. As you're saying, he's got a Lexus. He pulls up and he's like, yo, get in. And you're just like, wow, <laughs> the money. He's got money. And, you know, how did he get that? And I can get that money. That's usually how this story goes. No. But you're not saying, <laughs> oh, I want the money. You're like, I see a story. There's a philosophical, crazy, <laughs> existential yeah. absurdity to this that I got to find out about. Exactly. Yeah. Because honestly, there, when you get the internship back then, there is no money, right? Uh, it paid $312 a week and you killed yourself for it. So the internships <laughs> on the New York Stock Exchange way back in 2000, they were they were called squads. They gave you this little blue jacket and literally your job was to move pieces of paper from one side of the room to the other because the clerks and the brokers were separated by these little blue lines of tape on the floor. And there was 10,000 crazy people down there and uh, yeah, 300 bucks a week to move paper from one side of the floor to the other. And uh, they would use that as a way to find new talent, right? So I would say every week, three or four new girls or guys. Mostly guys, let's be honest, mostly no, guys. even back, back then there were a lot of women trying to get in. Right, trying. It was. I, I shouldn't say that they were probably in that position. Most of them didn't make it past the first few rungs. I would say there were some, but not many. There's some. There's some. I will say that it's actually you're hitting on why I didn't write the book though, because what I realized when I got down there, I was down there three or four months. They didn't care what school you went to. They didn't care 
yeah. uh, what you had done. They just cared. Could you hustle and move fast and hear it fast? And like, it went from me thinking it was this club and mm. this prep club type thing um, to realizing what really lived on the floor in its heyday was this meritocracy. Yeah. And it was a pure meritocracy. Like there, there really wasn't who you knew because everybody was making 300 bucks and running tickets. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I spent three months down there and then uh, this gentleman, Rudy Moss from at the time it was first union securities said, all right, we want to give you a job. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So you were good at it then because this was like Hunger Games. I mean, the people wanted these jobs. There was a lot of money to be made if you could keep going. And this was, and you, you're right, not only did it not matter who you know, you didn't have to have a college degree because many of the people went through the floor, floor system did not have a college degree, but you had to be good. I was 12 or 15 credits away. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. You did it. You were one of them, but you had to be good. I mean, there was no room for it. These, these, this was not like a gentle training course. This was no, like no, baptism no, uh, by fire. It was crazy, and there was two things you really had to figure out to get through it. One, you couldn't miss a detail. You couldn't make mistakes, right? So it had some of that intensity of being a waiter, right? So I'd been a waiter, right? So I was making more money working three nights as a waiter than I was working at the New York Stock Exchange. Number two, you had to spend the time to network and talk to people and show that you wanted to learn. Rudy wasn't going to just pick me up and give me the job. I had to see him sitting there and go talk to him and get other people to say, oh, yeah, that kid is running hard. And, and oh, he's not the one outside, you know, at lunch, you know, smoking 18 cigarettes. He's the one at lunch, you know, at the Bloomberg terminal getting research for mm-hmm. somebody else or whatever. And he's he's here every day. And, like, a lot of them would show up three days a week or whatever, right? You know. Yeah. That's an interesting observation because you would think that the skill you needed was to be fast with numbers. Because back then there was a lot of, yeah. (laughs) It was that when they said the numbers, you had to remember where they were and get them to the right place. Like it was, it was kind of like knowing a maze Yeah, and just being able to live under the pressure. Now, so that job in terms of like thought process and everything was pretty useless. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My second job, the one Rudy gave me, was even more useless. It was, okay, we're going to stick you upstairs and make you a a broker. And it was First Union Securities. Like, to me, growing up in North Carolina, where First Union was, like, the biggest bank or whatever, this is, like, you know, a major, major firm, and this has got to be really serious and all that sort of stuff. And then they stick you upstairs, and they say, here's a phone, pretend to be me, and make 500 phone calls a day. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? This is what the. I was like, wait a minute. Now we're back to where I thought the book was going instead of where I started to rethink it all. And um, First Union Securities is obviously not a boiler room, but everything back then was acting like a boiler room. Even though you're not selling fake stuff, you're selling global crossing convertible preferreds, or mm-hmm. let me tell you about the AOL Time Warner merger or whatever it was. 
I look at those two years of my life as learning what not to do. How so? It wasn't about the client. It was about the commission to my senior broker. Mm. And to me, the company I run today, where I help you know ETF entrepreneurs launch and grow their own funds, that, that's what I do today, right? That's, that's where we ended up in the end. To me, that's a fiduciary platform. Being a, a stockbroker for two years taught me what it means not to be a fiduciary. <laughs> so let's get to your second trade. Your second trade is one of your worst, and that's Royal Caribbean short puts in 2009. Yes. What happened here? Set the scene for us. All right. So we've kind of played out my, my history. So I really didn't have enough meaningful, call it personal capital to ever do anything meaningful for myself until after 2008, because that's when I kind of rose to the to higher end of the firm and started to make a meaningful income. So, you know, now I got a little bit of money, not nothing, nothing major yet. <laughs> um, and I start to, you know, do little trades here and there. Our firm had this research analyst, uh, David Leibowitz. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he always made this impression on me because he looked at companies a little bit differently, but he was also kind of um, an opportunist. So he considered himself the only analyst on Wall Street that covered cruise lines. Now, at the time, there was only one public one when I first met him. And by the time uh, I did these, it was Royal Caribbean was the second one. I think even today, there's only like three US ones and maybe like five internationally. So he, though, chose to be a a cruise line analyst because he would get free cruises. <laughs> um, Very smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so like, you know, we had this lots of coverage on these cruise lines and, you know, I had started to become infatuated with the concepts of, uh, shorting puts, you know, being long synthetically and, you know, it was 2009. So there was this kind of recovery trade, kind of like what we heard about after 2020, you know, the, the zombie stocks coming back alive. And, uh, I decided to take, I think it was $10,000 and sell puts on Royal Caribbean that expired in three months. Okay. All of the trade made a lot of sense to me. It was, it was a personal trade. It wasn't for the company or anything like that. Um, it, it was my kind of first attempt to learn the space. Now here's the big lesson though. This is what, what hurt me the most, you know, 2008 was tough for everyone. Um, I mean, not only tough, it was, it was brutal. all kinds of tough. Yes. Brutal. brutal. <laughs> yeah. In 2009, my firm at the time when I was at Horizon decided to get upgrade compliance and certain procedures. And so they hired some high-end compliance officer and she was great. And I'm not complaining or anything. But what she did do was she changed all the personal trading rules. Mm -hmm. But she didn't like grandfather anything. um, And she didn't like say these rules are going to go into effect in three months or right or anything like that. She just changed the rules. And the impact of that was the ten thousand dollar put sold put was now worth twenty, but I wasn't allowed to sell it anymore. Oh. Right. Um I wasn't or or buy it back. 
that seems like you got to at least let the trades in existence yeah, work their way so. through. Yeah. <laughs> but this was against the backdrop of Sarbanes-Oxley, and there were so many complaints, you know, in the wake of the great financial crisis, people were freaking out trying to, you know. Absolutely. I, I don't fault her at all. Um, I do think they could have said, hey, you know, here are the rules, and they're going to go in effect in a month yeah. um, so that you could, like, unravel things, but they yeah. didn't do it that way. Um, so I was short $10,000 worth. It was now worth twenty. I was like, okay, so when it expires or whatever, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cover and it'll be all legal and clean. Guess what? Then there was another downturn and the, I didn't just lose the 10,000. I ended up like losing another 10,000 because it went the Ooh. other way. So it was like a $40,000 swing um, on a personal trade. And at that time, that was an enormous, I mean, even today, that's an enormous amount of money to me. That's like oh, yeah. Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> What I really learned there, though, is one, people get excited about options when they start to first understand them. And there's so many great things that can be done with them. But understanding that it's the time issue is really important because within the, you know, a three month swing went from a, you know, $10,000 gain to a $20,000 loss. Like that's, that's um, on a percentage basis amazing. Number two, there's always factors that are outside the investment thesis. Yes. Right. And I, I don't think most PMs get that often. They they don't think about what if the SEC changes this rule or what if like what are the things that can happen that are idiosyncratic to this trade that are not idiosyncratic to the actual position in the yeah. the company, but they're they're out there. I thought that was a really interesting worst one because it really taught me a bunch of lessons. I, I've never sold another naked put. And I honestly, I don't do anything personally now that I don't plan to hold forever. I love sharing this with investors. You know, uh, I mentioned Kathy and her radical transparency and stuff. I take it even a step further. Not only do all of our funds show what they own every night, you know, we touch 55 ETFs at this point and we have full transparency on all of it. Mm. But uh, my own personal account where I buy things, I moved to uh, public, which is a, wow. a broker dealer pl- platform where it tells you, it, it makes your trades public. So why do you do that? Because there's two reasons. One, I like the idea back to the fiduciary of showing what I'm doing. Number two, if I didn't do it that way, I could never talk about what I've done personally. Yeah. Not only can I now talk about what I do in our funds, but now I can say, hey, yesterday I bought and you can see it. It's a public record, <laughs> right? Like, that's, yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I think this is always because there is a level of there's a level of trust that was broken somewhere along the line in, you know, the crises we had and, you know, people talking their book, not being transparent or, you know, doing it after the fact. I still have issue with that. There are some people that I don't care to talk to because I feel like they're you know, when they choose to speak publicly or in the media, they're doing it for a reason. And we don't always know what that is. Um, and that's tough. So that's amazing that you're willing to put it all out there. I, I think it's, I, I don't know why more people don't do it. Cause like the ability to just share and say, like, I don't know. I, I like the openness of it. Yeah. I, my, my personal investments are never going to really change my life. What changes my life is the ownership of my company. Right. And right. my company is levered to the overall market. So <laughs> my, my wealth is always going to be tied up in, in my company. So 
you know, the small things that I, I can do with extra investments or with my children and I want to share them, you know, cause this is where I have conviction. So your third trade is interesting. By the way, I, I just want to mention that you're so right about options. And I know there are a lot of people <laughs> who listen to this that have either had bad experiences or thinking about it. And it seems daunting. We actually just, just put a whole, um, academy up on Real Vision because, and and part of it touches on options because um, it, it it is a world where you can get really hurt if you don't know what you're doing. So I, I love that it it's not just for the beginners; it's also for all of you guys. Almost everyone that's done this podcast has had a a bad experience that they've learned a lot from when it comes to options. So your third trade is one of your worst as well. And this is the VIX in 2010 and 2018. So you got bit by this one twice. Yeah, yeah. So I love the concept of the VIX. I've been obsessed with it. I've done a lot of products around it. Uh, we have one in our trust right now, XVOL, and we we admin for SVIX and UVIX. But in 2009, I think VXX came out, right? It was a response to 2008 crisis. VXX was the inverse of the VIX futures curve. Nobody really heard that though. They just heard inverse VIX. They had no idea what they were buying. I actually did figure it out. Like I thought I, I went and did the research. I remember they'll probably deny it, but I remember the, the patriarchs of Horizons Kinetics getting really excited about this product and wanting to go along it. And I remember going and argue with them because now I was solving puzzles saying, no, we need to short this thing. And eventually they decided it was their idea to short it. So they started shorting it too. Um, uh, but uh, the trade in 2010 was another great education, which Unfortunately, it wasn't enough education because I more or less repeated a version of it in 2018. <laughs> uh, so VXX was the ETP that um, shorted the VIX futures curve. I kept looking for the anomaly where I could play the futures curve versus the actual VIX. What I didn't understand was the settlement of VIX options. Now, when I say VIX options, that's different than VXX options. So VXX options settle like any other options, right? They, if it says Tuesday night expiration, it's Tuesday night expiration. VIX does not settle like normal options. They expire on Tuesday night, but at a price set Wednesday morning that's based off of the expiration or the price between Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. So I had set up basically a pairs trade where I was trading options on VXX versus options on the VIX. And this is where I would say, you know, you can't walk into these esoteric things without understanding the world really, really well and all the nuances. So I'm here in the long only hedge fund equity kind of world thinking I'm finding an anomaly that everybody at CME and CBOE and CBOT at the time knew but I didn't look quite deep enough, right? I didn't know to look to that next level, that next little line. And I just remember going to bed that Tuesday night at the expiration going, oh, I made a bunch of money. And waking up the next morning, finding out I didn't make any money. I lost a little bit of money, but it was all not going deep enough, right? So mm -hmm. there's this habit of portfolio managers where they know their medium and they see an anomaly in a different medium and they think that 
they can just jump in there and that, that they saw it because they're, they're looking at it differently than the people who work in that medium normally. Or so that was probably a lesson in hubris <laughs> and, and diving deeper. Um, so where am I at today on the VIX? What have I learned? I no longer try and trade around the VIX because you can't buy and hold VIX products forever. There's nothing currently that exists where they take down the exposure. There have been products in the past that existed that you could have owned it forever, but they never guarded assets because mm. VIX investors like the volatility. They're in and <laughs> um, out right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if I'm going to be a buy and hold forever investor with my personal money from this point on, I stay away from these things completely because there's it's derivatives of derivatives of derivatives, right? You have mm-hmm. the VIX is a derivative of the options action on the S&P. You can't invest really in the VIX, but you can invest in a derivative of the VIX. And then you have ETFs that are a derivative that is well they're not really a derivative, but they're a package or structure that is investing in derivatives of a derivative. <laughs> so there's so many layers of it that they're sharp instruments that are should be left for master chefs and not for buy and hold investors. Now, there are smart people that are building tools with them, right? Like uh, Simplify has SVOL um, on our, tr- on our um, trust uh, accruance. Rob Emmerich has XVOL where they use components of it to augment a traditional strategy. Mm-hmm. But uh, going and trading these things with time horizons and lack of information and derivatives of derivatives of derivatives are not my recommendation. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it Warren Buffett who called derivatives uh, nuclear weapons, like uh, you know the equivalent of nuclear weapons? Uh, there might have been some wisdom. And he got you know roundly criticized for being old-fashioned, but there might be some wisdom in that. I mean, look, these things were created to help business owners hedge their businesses, right? I always remind people, we have wheat futures and corn futures for that purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And then speculators theoretically come in and are supposed to make the market more efficient. And then the next level comes in and you're really just playing a game. You're a complete speculator, you're not manipulating, but you're trying to find the anomalies within it. You're kind of throwing casino money at what is a product that was structured for a different reason. Yeah, it's not an easy one. (laughs) You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. No, and it's it's so easy because it sounds like in in the the experiences of your your worst trades, you've kind of moved away from more of the short term speculation and moved to be a longer term investor or an investor with a longer term horizon. Which is why I think your fourth trade is really interesting, <laughs> and it's one of your best, and that is embracing blockchain and crypto in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, so this one has been great for me and my firm and my family in all kinds of ways. So our firm is an ETF platform, right? We literally help 55 people launch and grow ETFs, right? Or 55 funds. And they'll probably be 75 by the end of this year. It's just, that's what we do. Now, 
we had a fund back in 2015. It was my favorite idea ever, but it never garnered assets. Um, it was called TETF, the ETF industry. So it was an ETF of all the companies making money off of the ETF industry. So BlackRock, Wisdom Tree, State Street, Northern Trust, uh, Virtue. Too bad nobody picked that up because the assets under management for ETFs has gone through the roof. It goes up 20% a year. And I so I, I maintain the index. So anybody who wants to know what's going on in the ETF industry, at the, my website, the ETF Think Tank, we maintain an index of the industry and we give out a weekly KPI, what's going on in an industry, how many active launches, how much is the revenue. You know, Today, the ETF industry generates like $12 billion in revenue, which is, I think that's why it never garnered assets. It's just pretty small on a revenue basis. Um, mm. To put that in context, last year, Bitcoin and Ethereum miners made like $34 billion. Yeah. So, you know. There you got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what the heck does TETF and KPIs and the ETF think tank have to do with crypto? So, you know, as a kind of a thought leader in the ETF industry, when the Winklevi tried to get the first Bitcoin ETF out there back in, call it, I think 2015, I get asked about it, right? And I responded just like everybody else did in 2015. That's for drug money. This is silly. Um, Still gross. The regulators, yeah. yeah, the regulators will never say yes. And da, da, da. so the, somebody Ella, that uh, I'm going to leave nameless asked me, look, Mike, just read the Bitcoin paper before you say that stuff again. I read the paper sometime in 2016, and my immediate reaction wasn't, wow, Bitcoin is amazing. My immediate reaction was, holy shit, this technology can put ETFs out of business. Yeah. Right? And here I am running an ETF company. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, I did not get super excited about the price movement. I didn't go out and buy a Bitcoin or anything like that. Why did you think it was going to put the ETF business, uh, ETF side of business? So everything that we do at my company today is pipes, right? It's verifying, it's putting pieces together. And when I read the paper and I saw the hashing and I saw the concepts, I said, if you can move money, you can move information, mm. right? So how, <laughs> how, how long is it going to take till people say, oh shit, we don't need to pay for the custodian, the exchange, the this, the that, the, you know, running an ETF costs 200 grand a year, regardless of what your assets are, because of all the trusted third parties verifying data in there. So as the guy running the ETF of the ETF industry and a platform for 50 people to launch ETFs, I said, I've got to do the deep dive here, right? Because mm-hmm. just like you know, when I was at um, Horizon in 2005, we saw ETFs as a threat to our hedge fund. Mm-hmm. So we became investors in Wisdom Tree and investors in emerging global advisors. We did that as a hedge. So my jump into blockchain and crypto was a hedge, and still is a hedge to the ETF industry. That you, you could see that you could see the elimination of the middleman based on this mm-hmm. technology. Absolutely, in every industry. In, in every verification. So I always like to say financial services sells two forms of trust. Okay. Trust number one is verification of your assets and your data and all that sort of stuff. That's all going to blockchain in the next five, 10, somewhere in there. It's all regulator dependent. It's already going there in Latin America and South America. It's already going there in Europe. 
but verification of data, it's all going there. Um, the second form of trust financial services sells is advice, right? That will not go to a blockchain because people want a person or a entity to explain to them their best asset allocation or their best trade or how to structure an ETF that's going to be viable and sellable. So mm-hmm. I'm not worried about that part of my business going away, but the infrastructure part, you better believe that we are light years ahead of everyone else in this industry in building the infrastructure for the day when blockchain traded funds replace exchange traded funds. To that end, sometime in late 2016, we started buying GBTC for clients at an extremely small weight and then selling half of it over and over and over again, um, which in the end was a great thing to do. But uh, that was more from the other lessons, position sizing and Mm -hmm. knowing what you can't know. That parlayed into us looking for blockchain companies. So we started to invest in a few small crypto miners. There was very few back then in 2017. The primary one we had money in was Hive, which resulted in us finally coming to become partners in the largest active blockchain ETF with Amplify. So my partner, Dan Weisskopf, and I are the lead PMs on Block, B-L-O-K, which is $650 million of blockchain-oriented public equities. Um, and it allows us to talk to all the miners. I've visited mm-hmm. mines all over America. Uh, Dan's actually been to the ones in Iceland. Um, it allows us to, you know, we have an open dialogue with Sailor and Novogratz and all these folks that, because we are the biggest piece of public liquidity. Um, so from that end, it's been a huge benefit to our firm. It's one of our most successful products not only in AUM, but in thought leadership. Um, On that ETF Think Tank website, we have interviews with the CEOs of just about every uh, public and a lot of private blockchain companies. So it's really allowed us to not only be ahead of what we think will be a transition, we don't know when because of the regulators, but it's allowed us to do a lot of thought leadership and something I like to call buy and learn. Um, so again, and since I don't like to sell things, I have bought plenty of these, uh, random small ones and made out like a bandit on some and others not, but each one was about learning. Like I could go spend $50,000 to get a master class in blockchain and learn less than I would buying $10,000 of random protocols and actually doing the hard work to figure out when and where and how and what they do and what the code says, Um, So I spend a lot of time with that. We just actually did an NFT project. Now, this is hilarious because we did it with the intention of losing money, meaning I couldn't make money on these NFTs. If I did, they would be unregistered securities. So when we did our project, we did the ETF nerd NFT. It's it's on OpenSea. They're free to mint. But when we were explaining that we wanted to mint them for free, they were like, OpenSea was like, why? We're like, <laughs> because we're I like, can't make money on them. And they're like, I don't who want are to make you money. weird people? <laughs> and I'm just trying to do an education piece for my friends here in the ETF world, in the TradFi world. Go try and mint one because you're going to learn a million little nits that are the key to mm-hmm. your demise. Like you're gone in 15 years if you don't change. And so, you know, we wrote a couple pieces. Cynthia Murphy, who runs our research department, wrote a couple of great pieces on, you know, her walk down the rabbit hole of NFTs and crypto. So, um, 
yeah, embracing crypto as a understanding that if I'm not there, my day job could be gone. Today, we also are investors in OnRamp, um, which is a platform that's looking to uh, link financial advisors software to crypto software. So Coinbase and Gemini linked into Advise On and Morningstar and ComplySide. Mm. And we did that, again, for the pipes, right? So that mm. we can learn it all because um, those pipes will become blockchain-traded fund pipes in the future. I mean, this is very forward-looking and very, worth pointing out, very against the grain of what a lot of people in traditional finance believe. You have a totally different approach. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to understand this. I'm going to experiment. Where does that come from? Why do you have that mindset and your peers don't? I don't put the same value. I don't see the translation of trust from brand. So a lot of these bigger traditional finance companies, they're selling their brand, right? They're coming to you and say, we're Northern Trust. You can trust me. So if you tell them there's a system that you can trust that doesn't require, you know, a massive infrastructure and it's decentralized and there's there's no single person who can actually come in and steal from you, they're like, nah, that's just ridiculous. That's who we are, right? So they can't even fathom this, right? So they're doing, as Ben Hunt likes to say, they're doing the commodification of it. They're like, look, we're in because we're figuring out ways to let you invest in it and to, for us to make money off of it, right? Um, you know, I mean, look look at BlackRock the other day. That's where, you know, now they have their own Bitcoin trust. Like, come on. Um, I look at it very different. I saw ETFs disintermediate mutual, I mean, mutual funds and hedge funds. I saw mutual funds disintermediate annuities. This is nothing new. This is just a better technology. So in 10 years, Wall Street will be selling only one form of trust. It won't be two anymore. Wall Street's going to convert to selling advice. They're going to find ways to use the blockchain to make money and stuff like that. But the 200 grand a year it costs to run an ETF is going to drop to 30 or 40,000 when it all moves to a blockchain. Um, there'll be certain things that you'll want a second party. Just, just like with blockchain today, most people don't go and use their own node and and you know like I, I have I have most of my coins in cold storage but it took me four years to figure that out uh, or to, to take the time to actually go do that most people still use a trusted third party mm. and guess what a lot of those trusted third parties shouldn't have been trusted right like yeah I know Steve Ehrlich I'm not happy right now <laughs> um, yeah right? Like, there's a lot uh, <laughs> there's a lot of growing pains isn't there there's yeah. a lot of growing pains do you think of yourself as a risk taker because you could argue that jumping in early into the space is a risky move and that kind of is on the other extreme of you being I'm gonna hold for the long term I don't yeah. do short speculative so so the original name of our company is Toroso T O R O S O so it's Toro is bull, Oso is bear. We said, uh, my business partner, Guillermo Trias, he's Spanish. We, you know, we thought, oh, we're going to be the bull and the bear company. And in the firm, everybody refers to me as the, the perma bear. I'm always the risk adverse um, and, and Guy's more of the bull. So it's funny because I don't see my investments in crypto as speculative or, or risky. I see them as a hedge to where the bulk of my real wealth is, which is in the equity of this business. So you're you're a bear protecting himself 
from disruption. Yeah. You're a nervous, worrying bear. That's a, that sees crypto as one of your best trades. That's fantastic. Do I get excited when I see these new things or when I see, you know, XYZ coin go up 4,000%? Sure, but that's not going to change my life. I'm never going to size the investment enough where it's going to change my life. Um, that said, who the hell knows? Like, you know, I got some Bitcoin. Who, who knows? Maybe the, maybe the, it doesn't matter the size. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I've also got, I mean, I don't, I know people like to call them terrible names, like shit coins and all coins and all that. I don't care what they're called or what they are. I want to understand the technology. So if I can buy and learn it, because I think 95% of it is pets.com. Meaning in 1999, pets.com was a great idea as evidenced by the fact that today Chewy is a very profitable company. It's the same (laughs) damn thing. Yeah, everybody derides pets.com as the poster child for what went wrong, but really it was just the poster child for being early and maybe not sort of well capitalized. Well, the infrastructure. Well capitalized, too well capitalized, right? Being too, just too fast, growing too fast. And there was no infrastructure. There was no delivery. There was no payment systems. There was only 100 million internet users. Fast forward 22 years. Now you got FedEx, UPS, Postal, all very cheap. You've got billions or multi-billion internet users. You've got payment systems all over the place. So I think almost every one of these tokens, protocols, whatever you want to call them, whatever the vernacular of the day, 95% of them will go to zero and be reborn in 10 years when the infrastructure's there. My company will be part of that infrastructure. It's the first iteration. You're going to be the pipes. So you're not you're not betting on the end. You're not betting on the coin. You're betting on the basically the the sort of world that's being built. Yeah, and every gold rush, you get three or four people who hit it. Everybody else goes bankrupt, and the guy selling picks and shovels makes out like a bandit. I am your picks and shovels for today's tradfi world and tomorrow's defi world. I love it, Mike. It's been an absolute joy having you. Thank you so much for being on my life in four trades. Thank you, Maggie. I really enjoyed this. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.